This morning we are back together in John chapter 8, continuing our study through this ancient story about Jesus and who he was and what he said and what he did. We pick up in John chapter 8 where Jesus has been teaching people in Jerusalem during one of Israel's most famous, most beloved, most well-attended feasts. You probably know, if you know anything about the Jewish people, that their year was built around feasts, around these celebrations of what God had done for them in their past. And the feast that Jesus has come to Jerusalem for in chapter 8, where we are now, it's called the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. And it's looking back to the time that God led the people through the wilderness into the promised land, from Egypt where they had been enslaved, all the way to the land that God had given them. They, they remembered God's provision for them, his guidance of them, and sort of took those promises of that era and planted them in their present held on to them and the hope that God could give them deliverance from Rome, from all the powers that threatened them that they couldn't control or thwart. They wanted that same thing that Israel had known when they were in slavery in Egypt to be brought into their experience now. That's what the feast did for them. The Feast of Tabernacles was all about the wilderness. In fact, the reason it was called the Feast of Booze is that they were supposed to set up booze that they would live in, just like the ones that Israel had lived in when they were walking through the wilderness way back when. They had built themselves these little tents, these little booths that they would sleep in. And, and they wanted to relive that experience every year at the Feast of Booths. Now, where, Jesus picks up, where we pick up with our story about Jesus here in verse 12 of chapter 8, Jesus is still teaching the people who had gathered for this feast. They'd come to Jerusalem from all over the Jewish world to celebrate the feast. And so Jesus has a captive audience. He's already taught them about the, the promise that he would give living water to anyone who comes to him. And we talked when we looked at that passage about how it, the feast was, was meant to picture water that God had given Israel from the rock when they were wandering through the wilderness and that God had promised to bring to Israel in the spirit that would wash people clean and give them new life. That's what Jesus had been drawing on the imagery of the feast when he said, come to me and I'll give you living water. Today's passage brings up another image that was attached to this feast of booths that Jesus is trying to call on to make some sense out of who he is and what he wants to do for people. And it's the image of light. Now, let, me, let me paint the picture for you here, okay, of what the Feast of Booths would have looked like in Jerusalem. We talked about how one of the things they did every day was bring water from a special pool into the, into the temple and in a huge ceremony pour that water near the, near the temple altar to, to picture God's promise to give them living water, make them new through water. But light was also a key part of this feast and its celebration. Every evening during the Feast of Booths, they would light these huge lamps, these, these torches in the temple, in the, in the outside area of the temple. You'd walk into the, into the gates and you'd be in this area that was pretty much open to, to almost anybody. It wasn't the, the inner sanctum where only the priests could go. It was where people could come and mill around. It's called the Court of Women. That's where Jesus is talking when this story happens. This would be the place where they would come and they would light these four huge lamps. And the, the worshipers themselves in the middle of this, of this huge court would have torches they would be dancing and singing with these torches in this huge celebration. The Levitical orchestra would be playing, uh, playing their hearts out. And there would be music that would be, would be radiating from the central temple all through the city of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was built around this temple. It was their holiest site. It was up on a hill. And you can imagine, in these days, before there was all this electric light, you know, that sort of casts a haze over everything that we see, you can imagine the blackness of night in ancient Jerusalem. You imagine the stars that would pop out on the sky like a black canvas. Now you imagine that blackness lit up 
by this central temple in all its glory, lit with these huge torches that cast light out over the whole city. You can imagine the children loving to see that, longing for it every year to come back around. What it would have been like to sit there and look at that light and hear that music and to celebrate all that God had been and all that God was promising to be. And now think, friends, Jesus stands there in the same place that those lamps would have been lit the night before. On the last day, the day after the feast, Jesus is standing there teaching, and he says to them, I am the light of the world. Everything you looked for in this feast, everything those lamps represent is fulfilled in me. Now, this is one of John's iconic statements about who Jesus is. And Jesus, when he, when he made this statement, was drawing on a huge wealth of imagery from the Old Testament, from Jewish practice. So when folks that day heard him say this, they knew what he was talking about. And most of them didn't like it. They were offended by it. Offended, in fact, so offended that it stirred them up to want to kill him even more that he'd said this. And I'm guessing you're like me. You read, you read Jesus' claim that he's the light of the world and nothing like that strikes you. So we've got work to do this morning to try to hear this claim in the way that these first century Jews heard his claim. Because there shouldn't be any sort of neutral reaction to this claim. There should be worship of him or there should be just revulsion and almost hatred for what he's claiming. Either way makes sense. A sort of letting it bounce off of you like water off a duck's back, that one doesn't make sense. So we want to make sure that is not how you react to this passage today. I want to spend time understanding the background to it so that you know what people were hearing when Jesus said this. And I think once we've understood the background to it, we'll see why we need the same thing he was offering to them. So I want to focus mostly this morning on why we need light, why it would be good news that Jesus is claiming to be the light of the world. And then I want to focus on where he directs their attention in his conversation back and forth with these Jewish leaders, where we can see the light. I want to focus on why we need it and how we can see it. Now, the first thing I want to do is read the passage together. So I'm going to ask you now, in honor of God's word, if you would please stand with me. Uh, I want to read from from verse 12 all the way through verse 30 of John chapter 8. This is the word of the Lord. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet, even if I do judge... My judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it's written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, 
I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. And he said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true and I declare to the world what I've heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I want to start with why we need the light. That means looking at what Jesus meant by this imagery. We've got to understand why he used this image, why it connected so immediately with the people he was speaking to. We need to, under, we need to understand where he's coming from before we'll understand this as good news. And that means pulling from the Old Testament. Because when Jesus made this statement, he was making it in the context of a feast rooted in the story of the Old Testament and pulling from all this imagery that had been used throughout the pages of the Old Testament. To know what he means by light, you've got to know what the Old Testament meant by light. And fortunately, we've got a lot of material to work with. And I want to I give you this material in three steps. I think there are three different layers to this light imagery. Another way to say it would be that there's three different dimensions of darkness that Jesus shines into as the light of the world. We need to understand these three before we'll understand the full weight of what he says here. Here's the first one. When Jesus says that he is the light of the world, he's drawing on the imagery of light as, a, as understanding that shines in the darkness of ignorance. One of the most common images in the Old Testament for light is light is a sort of illumination, a new, a new way of seeing, a new understanding of something that otherwise you wouldn't know. Darkness as a form of ignorance, understanding as a form of light. And, you know, honestly, we still use similar language today. If you say you're in the dark on something, you mean you don't understand it. When you ask someone to shine a light on something, we want them to help us understand something that we don't otherwise understand. It's light as the ability to see what's there, as the ability to understand reality, as, as similar to when the light of the sun rises and illuminates what's around us, what's been there all along, but what hasn't been visible to us. So this sort of light is, is, rises in our minds and illuminates the world that's always there, like the walls of a room that's shrouded in darkness that you can't see. They're still there. What you need is a light that will shine and pick them up so that you can see them. This sort of light is that kind of light, light as, a, as an understanding of what's around you, of who you are and what the world means and what your place in it is. It's the light by which we see. Now, by this light, the Old Testament doesn't mean, Jesus doesn't mean, I don't mean, just intellectual ignorance. You know, it's not the difference between being educated or uneducated. 
in the Old Testament, this sort of light is more of an ability to understand the world and ourselves as we are. More, more an ability to understand what's true. There's more of a moral component to it. Seeing the world for what it is. It's not about being educated versus uneducated. It's about getting it. About getting what's true and real. So this is what the pillar of fire stood for in the wilderness years. So in the Feast of Booths, remember it's a, it's a feast that celebrates what happened when Israel was wandering through the wilderness. The reason they like these lamps one of the main things they're evoking with those lamps is God leading his people day by day, night by night, through the wilderness by this huge pillar of fire that casts light on where they should go. They were supposed to follow that light. It's, it's about guidance and wisdom and insight. It's what the psalmist had in mind when he wrote of God's word. In Psalm 119, the psalmist wrote of God's word as a lamp to his feet and a light to his path. He wants insight, understanding about where he should go, what he should do, who he should be. It's what he had in mind when he wrote Psalm 43, praying that God would send his light and truth to lead him. I think what we're meant to see here is darkness as a kind of ignorance of our purpose, an ignorance of our meaning, of who we are and what we're here for, what we should be doing with ourselves, how we should understand the world around us. In the last 100 years or so, there's a sense in which we have seen more darkness evaporate in the last hundred years than in any other period in human history. Advances in technology, in scientific understanding of how the world works, have banished certain forms of darkness where we just didn't understand things before and now understand the workings of the world more fully than ever before. We have Google and we have Siri and we have Wikipedia to enlighten us anytime we don't know something. Information isn't a problem anymore, right? It's all right there at our fingertips. If you don't know something, you type it in and seconds later you have it. But meaning and purpose and guidance. We still know what darkness is there, don't we? For all we've understood now about how the natural world works, are we any closer through the processes of science or philosophy, to understanding who we are and why we're here, what we should be doing with ourselves? Are we any more in the light there than we were before? Does the fact that your, your phone can also translate for you in the languages of the world give you any more insight into what you should do with tomorrow? The darkness that the Old Testament writes of and that we experience, this darkness of ignorance comes from recognizing just how small we are in the grand scheme of things. That we have got to have some sort of attachment to something bigger than ourselves and what we want and what we think and what we already know. There's got to be more out there than what's in here. There's got to be. But what? What is true? Jesus is claiming here to be the light of the world, to be what we, otherwise in darkness, to be what we need to see the reality of the world around us and to see our place in it. That's one dimension of darkness here. Darkness is an ignorance about the nature of things that Jesus' light shines into to give understanding. There's a second layer to darkness that comes out of the Old Testament and its imagery that Jesus is drawing from when he says, I am the light of the world. Here's the second one. Darkness is a way of picturing suffering and sorrow. A 
But the world and our experience of it just isn't what it should be. We know that, right? And the Old Testament is full of language that's really honest about that. And often the language used is the language of darkness. It's what we know from our experience as well. When we refer to something as a dark time in our, in our life, right? A dark time is a time of despair or depression. A time when things just weren't going well. A time when, when perhaps we were deeply disappointed or when we experienced some sort of pain or loss. Darkness is what threatens us in this world, what robs our joy, what takes away life. Ultimately, this sort of darkness includes even death itself. This is what Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, referred to as a cloud or a veil cast over all peoples. The fact that you'll die is a kind of darkness that hangs over you, a veil that's cast over all peoples. It's what the psalmist referred to as the valley of death or the valley of deep darkness. That's the literal translation of Psalm 23 that that most of us are familiar with. Even though I walk through the valley of deep darkness. What's he talking about? All the things in this world that are more powerful than us, that threaten us, that threaten our joy, that threaten life itself. It's in this darkness, this life-threatening, life-vacating darkness that the psalmist elsewhere speaks of God as light and salvation. Psalm 27, 1. God is my light and my salvation. It's what he means when he says in Psalm 36, verse 9, that God is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. This is the sort of darkness in which God stands as a light. In the midst of sorrow and despair and death itself, his light breaks in. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, That's what he means. That's his claim. And here's the last one, number three. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he's speaking of a light that dispels the darkness of sin. It's a light that gets rid of the darkness of ignorance, a light that shines into the darkness of sorrow and suffering, but also a light that shines into the darkness of sin. Jesus himself has already used darkness in this sense in John 3. We don't have to go all the way back to the Old Testament to, to, to pull on this imagery. In John chapter 3, one of Jesus' first sections of teaching that John gives us, he talks about those who love the darkness rather than the light. And he says the reason they love the darkness is that their deeds are evil. They would rather hide so that they can do what they want to do without detection because their deeds are evil. They don't want to know what's true. Because what's true will condemn the thing that they're doing that they love. So they hide in darkness. It's, it's light in the sense that evokes holiness and purity. The absence of darkness. It's what's used to describe God himself who dwells in unapproachable light and in whom there's no darkness at all. It's what Jesus is referring to here in this passage, John chapter 8, verses 21 to 24, where he warns those who don't accept him, If they don't accept him as the light, they don't believe in him, he says, you're going to die in your sins. Sins represent darkness. He has come as the light. To reject him as the light is to stay in your sins, which is a form of darkness. And this fits with our our way of using the term darkness, too. And we still use language the same way. When we talk about a dark movie, right? A dark movie is one in which the characters are just ugly which they do and think and say ugly things to each other. They're typically violent, full of sin. 
we tend to think, I, uh, I think one of the things we tend to do with this darkness language now is sort of project it onto sort of uber criminals, right? Serial killers, people who are, who, who are psychopaths. We describe what's in them, animating them as a, as a sort of darkness. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, what we also know is that that same darkness is in us too. That it's, it's that sort of darkness that makes it possible for us to say things about people to others when they're not around that tear them down and build us up by contrast to say things we wouldn't ever consider saying to their face as if they aren't hurtful or wrong. How do you get there where you could say something that would kill you if it was said about you? Say it, to say it about somebody else and it doesn't even affect you. It's a certain form of darkness that gets you there, isn't it? It's... It's darkness that causes us to secretly rejoice when someone else has misfortune because it makes us feel better about where we stand, about what we have going on. In fact, I, I think darkness is about as good a description as you can come up with for what is at the root of all sin, a sort of absolute self-absorption where you're so consumed by yourself and your own needs, what's best for you, what you want out of life, that it cuts you off or blinds you to the effect that you have on other people. This is, this is sin as darkness. Jesus has this in mind when he says that he is the light of the world and that those who follow him, those who fall in line behind him, those who grab onto him with all that they are will no longer walk in darkness, but they will see the light. This is what John had in mind in chapter 1 in this beautiful text where he's introducing us to the themes that the rest of the book is going to unpack, to who Jesus is. And John writes there that the people who walk in darkness, the darkness of ignorance, the darkness of sorrow, the darkness of sin, the people like us who have walked all their days in darkness have seen a great light. And that light shines in the darkness with all its brilliance. And the darkness could not overpower it. Jesus is saying, I am that light. I am the light of the world. Now, to understand why it's so offensive to those who hear it, here's the thing you've got to get, friends. He is not saying, I am a light. I am a source of enlightenment, a source of hope, a source of purity holiness. He is saying, I am the light. What he is claiming, what he is claiming is that there is nowhere else that we see light like we see it in him. Let me put it another way. He's saying that everywhere else we see light of any sort, what we're seeing is only a reflection of Him, that He is its source. He's saying, for example, that though you might get some insight into the nature of the world from a wise man, though you might read some Proverbs of Confucius and find wisdom there, what you're seeing there is not a source of light, but a reflection of the light that is Jesus. He is the light, 
Confucius or whoever else, he's picking up only a pale reflection of who Jesus is. What he is saying is that every glimmer of hope in every one of your favorite stories, every story that you read or watch and wish to be true, is picking up in its hopefulness only a pale reflection of the light who is Jesus. That those stories are all true in the sense that they project who Jesus is and in His coming what He has represented. Redemption for the world, for all who will come to Him. All those things you wish were true will be true in Jesus. He is saying that every act of justice in this deeply unjust and self-absorbed world is beautiful to you not because it stands on its own, but because it picks up a glimmer of the light that is Jesus, the one in whom is no darkness at all, the one who has come to banish darkness once and for all from this world and from each of those who turn to him in faith, who walk no longer in darkness, but in the light. Jesus is the light. Everything else is just picking him up. That's his claim. And it's a wonderful claim. And we would be crazy not to want this claim to be true. But is it true? And how can we know it's true? And how can we see Jesus as a light that shines in our darkness? That's the question that drives most of this passage. This light of the world statement comes in the first verse that we read, verse 12. Then he's gone. It moves on. I think everything else that comes from verses 13 to 30 is unpacking his claim to be the light of the world, but the image goes away. And what takes its place is this back and forth between Jesus and the people who can't stand that he goes around calling himself things like the light of the world. They can't stand it. It's a back and forth between Jesus in which they want more evidence that he can back up this claim that he's made to be the light of the world. They want to know. They want to know how they could know. It's a back and forth that's frustrating to follow because Jesus doesn't give them what they want. They want more evidence. But by this point, Jesus knows that they aren't really interested in understanding him. That, in fact, by this point, they're they're already looking to get rid of him. So he doesn't give them what they're looking for. His answers to their questions are a little bit cryptic, honestly. I think they are intentionally meant to to refuse to give them what they're looking for. Jesus doesn't give it to them because he knows that they won't see it. And ultimately, they're looking for what they want to see. I don't want to go into all the back and forth because we don't have time and because ultimately it doesn't really reveal a whole lot. I think it's meant to be a kind of cryptic conversation where Jesus is just trying to show that they're operating on two different playing fields here. They're from, to use his language, they're from below He's from above. They don't see as he sees. They judge as men judge, based on appearances, he's already said. But I don't judge that way. I judge no one like that. I judge based on what the Father has told me. The driving theme is they're not getting it because they don't know who he is. They don't know where he's come from. They don't know the Father. And if they don't know the Father, they can't see Jesus because everything Jesus does is just what the Father told them to do. Everything Jesus does is a reflection of God himself who sent Christ here on his mission. If they don't see the Father, they won't see him. 
That's how the conversation goes. Hopefully that was clear enough to you as, as we just read through it earlier. It doesn't really lead anywhere for the most part. Just a lot of misunderstanding. And Jesus claimed that that's not going to change. Jesus warning that unless you affirm that I am he, that I am the one I've been talking about, the one you've been looking for in this feast that you're celebrating even this week, unless you believe that I'm he, you're going to die in your sins. Now, now here's the exception. He does say this. He does say that if they're going to know him, if they're ever going to move from judging based on appearances, based on the way other people judge, based on what men already want to see about the world, if they're ever going to move from judging like that, with these blinders on, to seeing things the way Jesus sees them, if they're ever going to move from below to above, then there will be one thing that will get them there. If they're ever going to see the light, in other words, verse 28 shows us where it can be seen. I think the whole conversation builds to verse 28, where Jesus says, here is where the light will be seen more clearly than anywhere else. If you're going to see it, it's not that everyone here is going to see it, but if you are going to see it, this is where you'll see it. Verse 28 says, Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Whole conversation is about how can we know? How can we know? How can we know? You say you're from your father. Who's your father? How will we know that you're only doing what he said? And who is he even? All, that's what drives the whole conversation. In verse 28, Jesus says, here's how you'll know. There's one place that you can see it more clearly than anywhere else. It's when the Son of Man is lifted up. Now, this is a reference to Jesus' cross. This is how he refers to his death on the cross in John. To himself being lifted up to draw all those who come to him to himself and to save them from their sin once and for all. Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying in verse 28 that it's in his lifting up, it's in his death on the cross that it becomes clearest that he does exactly what the Father says. That he, in the, verse, the words of verse 29, is perfectly pleasing to the Father that he is the one that the world has been waiting for. It's in the cross. It's in the crushing of the faithful one by the will of the Father that the light shines most brightly in the darkness. I think some of this language is pulling from another place in the Old Testament. One of the most beautiful predictions of Jesus' death comes in the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53. It's one that we read a lot of times around, around Good Friday. It speaks, of, it speaks of the suffering servant who will come and do everything that his father, that, 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 that God's will uh, set out for him to do. The one who, for whom it was the will of the father to crush him, Isaiah 53 says. It pleased him to crush this servant that by his death many would be made righteous. I think that's what Jesus is drawing from here. He says he does only what is pleasing to the Father. Isaiah 53 has told you what is pleasing to the Father. It is the lifting up of the Son of Man. It is the death of Jesus on behalf of the world. That is where the light is seen most clearly. You'll see it there. You won't see it at all. The cross is the source of light. It's the cross by which we see. It's the cross that dispels darkness. He's not saying that everybody's going to recognize Jesus in that moment. That doesn't happen. 
Jesus dies and many of them still don't believe. They were glad about it. What he's saying is that anyone who ever does see Jesus for who he is, anyone who ever does look at him and say, that is the light, will affirm him and grab onto him and see by him because of his death. His death is the key. And how does this work? I want to use the last few minutes that I've got. I want to use these last few minutes to tie the cross, what Jesus did there when the Son of Man was lifted up, to tie the cross to the three forms of darkness that I mentioned earlier. Jesus is making a claim, I hope that's clear, that if you want to see the light, if you want to see him as the light of the world, you've got to see him lifted up. I think what that means is, if you want to understand how Jesus functions as a light in the three kinds of darkness that we've highlighted earlier, you need to know how the cross brings light into those specific kinds of darkness. And I want to do that. I just want to point the way to that in the last few minutes that I've got here. The three forms of darkness. Here's the first one. The cross helps us to see who we are. Helps us to understand the world around us and our place in it. Now, I don't want to spend much time here because it's too big of an issue to try to unpack for you in one little sermon application, right? It's, in fact, kind of what we do for each other. The whole point of our, one of the the main purposes of our community is to try to help each other constantly look to Jesus and to see everything in our lives in light of him. We want to see our relationships. We want to see our jobs. We want to see our ambitions in life and all of our desires in the light that's shed on on us and who we are and what we should be by Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross. If you think about your world and everything in it, everything that matters to you as a sort of room with walls on it, Think about yourself apart from Christ as in darkness and unable to see those pieces to your world. The cross plants itself in the middle of your world and shines its light, and it's by its light that you see things as they are. Now, that's a big claim. Again, one I don't have time to unpack or prove to you this morning. So what I want to appeal to you to do is to get further involved at Trinity if you're not yet. Because this is what we do for each other. We try to help each other see how Jesus' death for us changes who we are and how we behave and, 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 and what we want out of life. In particular, a couple of our summer studies that are going on right now have this focus. Uh, The ones on Wednesday night and and Thursday night in particular uh, are are doing this work, trying to show how the cross shines light on things like how we relate to each other. Uh, One on Wednesday night is called Gospel-Centered Community. The idea is how how Jesus and his death for us shapes our life together. Take advantage of one of those studies if you want to understand more about this, this part of Jesus' claim. I want to move to the second one. We've said that darkness in the Old Testament is partly the darkness of sorrow. The reality of this world just isn't what we wish that it was. That things happen to us we can't control and no one would ever want. Jesus is claiming to be the light of the world, and in that claim, he's claiming that he shines into that sort of darkness and gives hope. And what he's saying is that the cross is this light. That when the Son of Man is lifted up, you will see how he can be the light of the world in the midst of the darkness of sorrow and suffering and ultimately death. And I think, I think what he means is that in the cross, we see God himself entering into our world and taking suffering onto himself just like we have experienced. He's not isolated himself from what it's like to be us, but he has known every sorrow that any person has ever known. He has taken them fully on his own back and he has carried them for us. The cross doesn't give us an explanation for why things are the way they are. 
for why our friends suffer and die, for why bad things happen to us. The cross doesn't give us an explanation, but what it offers us is a promise that God himself can turn even the darkest sorrow into light, that he can bring light out of darkness because the cross is the best example of that happening, the most atrocious evil, the most awful darkness that anyone has ever seen or known happened that night when Christ was lifted up. But it was through his death that the greatest light that has ever shone on this world breaks forth. It is only through his death in that darkest of nights that any of us can look to the future with hope and know that death will not be the end if we have latched ourselves onto him. It's, the kind of, it's this kind of light that Horatio Spafford was grabbing onto in one of our favorite hymns. We sing, It is well with my soul here at Trinity a lot. Many of you probably already know the backstory. He wrote that right after he had lost his family. His family had been sailing from America to England and their ship went down and they died. And he wrote this on, sh- on a ship crossing the same ocean that his family had died in, doubtless looking at these waters and thinking about them claiming the life of his children. And it was there that he could write, when peace like a river attendeth my way or when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, he has taught me to say it is well with my soul. How has he taught him to say it is well, even when sorrow, the deep, dark sorrow of the death of his children has afflicted him? How in that context can he say it is well? He, he answers us. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. The cross where the Son of Man is lifted up is the light that shines into Horatio Spafford's darkness. And it doesn't explain why his children died. It doesn't bring them back. But it reminds him that their death is not the final word on what God has in store for him and for his family. The cross proves that to him. It's a light shining into his darkness. I I haven't experienced that. I can't tell you from personal experience that the cross can be that light for you in whatever sorrow you're facing now or in whatever might come for you tomorrow or next year. What I can say is that that's what Jesus promises and that for men like Horatio Spafford, he has proven true to his word. The Son of Man lifted up shines even into the darkness of our sorrow. And finally... The Son of Man lifted up shines on the darkness of our sin. It is in the cross that we see it for the ugliness that it is. It is the kind of light that helps us to see just how serious sin is. It took Jesus' life. God himself had to break into history and die because sin was was something that just could not be explained away. It had to be addressed. That's how ugly it is. But with the ugliness of sin that the cross shines light on, there is also the promise. There is also the light that shines into the darkness of sin with the promise that there is cleansing for all who come to Jesus and a freedom to acknowledge who you are, to admit what you've done, to not be afraid, to own up to your sin, knowing that Jesus is strong enough 
that the Son of Man lifted up is powerful enough to wipe us clean so that we don't have to hide our sin in darkness. The darkness of sin is no longer a necessary refuge for us, but we can bring it to the light of his cross and know that it's taken care of. This is what John himself unpacks in 1 John, one of his letters, where he says in chapter 1 that the blood of Jesus cleanses those who confess their sins, cleanses them from all sin, and makes us to walk in the light doesn't mean we're free from sin. It means we're free from having to hide our sin in darkness because Jesus' cross can handle it. Jesus has promised to be the light of the world. He has told us that if we want to see that light, we've got to look to the Son of Man lifted up. Will you look to Him this morning? Father, we need Your Spirit to give us eyes to see. If we're going to see, we're no less blind than the Pharisees were. Jesus is right there in front of them. He's saying these words and doing these things right there in front of them. They hear him with their own ears and see him with their own eyes, and yet they don't see him. And neither will we. We judge as those from below, as those based on appearances, as those who weigh Jesus and his claims in light of how those claims will sound to our friends. And what we need, if we're to have any hope of seeing the light of Jesus, is your spirit to give us life, to give us eyes to see. And that's what we pray for now. Help us to see Jesus and to see that in him there is no darkness that can overpower the light that shines through his cross. Help us to see and savor him this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.